Hello, my name is Jason Reichel, and you're listening to Risk Management Brick by Brick. I'm fascinated with people who are helping build and maintain the physical world around us. On each episode of this podcast, we'll dive in with a risk manager, speak to them about how technology plays a role in this process. Our guest for today's episode is the highly skilled risk professional, Marco Romero. Marco is the risk management and claim specialist at Harkins Builders, a leading construction management and general contracting firm. With expertise in risk assessment and analysis, Marco's construction background, attention to detail, and strong communication skills makes him the perfect guest for Brick by Brick. Let's dive straight in. Hello, Marco. Thank you for joining me on Brick by Brick. It's very nice to have you, man. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. But let's get started with a little bit about you. Where do you come from? How did you end up in your role? And were you born a risk manager? That's a question I like to ask. Sure. So I'd like to believe that I was born a risk manager, but I just didn't know it. <laughs> not, not until later on. I uh, went to school for business administration and got my bachelor's degree. And that was geez, 2012, 2013. I was in college actually when I started working in the insurance industry. I didn't really think much of it, just needed a job at the time. And I uh, took a customer service position at a insurance, a local insurance agency. And lo and behold, fell in love with insurance. Told myself I'd only be there through college. I found myself there almost 10 for 10 years. After 10 years there, thought it was the right time to take the next step. And I jumped into the general contractor world as a risk management administrator. And I've uh, been in the risk management department of this general contractor for, I would say, a little over three years now. It's being in it for 13 years, I think I can say I was definitely born to do it. Just took a little bit to find that out. Let's highlight a couple of things there. So you mentioned the insurance piece. I sometimes have risk managers on here who... I think of risk managers as two different types, usually. There's the, the type that is, my vendors and subcontractors are key. I want to be able to communicate to them as effectively as possible. But if that COI comes across my door the day of the job, I just want to put it into a system and move on with my life. And then there are those who run risk management programs that really are about requirements, contract matching, making sure the COI matches your contracts properly, making sure that you have the right insurance coverage, maybe offering up that insurance coverage, all these different things that have to occur on the side of the business. And those are two different kind of competing risk management philosophies. Where is your risk management philosophy fall? What do you tend to believe is a good risk management program? So... I think if, if in order to get a, a good risk management program, you have to be effective in managing risk. And uh, if it were as easy as collecting a COI, just making sure the name is there, don't know if I, that I'd have a job. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm definitely on the side where we like to cross our T's, dot our I's, make sure that not just the COI is there, but the correct endorsements, the correct additional insurance language is there. It's really important to make sure that these things are in place because yeah, I mean, we can, and I'm sure you've heard it before. We can all go back and say, well, the language is in the contract and we can fall back on that. This is the double-edged sword of what risk managers have to deal with is this ideology that's really not accurate. Right. And it's really good to to take a step from that or forward from that and ensure that the insurance is there, not just because the contract requires it, but because it makes you a better company, a better organization. Being proactive with risk means that not only will you stop money from going out on the back end, but it can, in time-saving aspect of it, create income flow there yep. in a way. So that's where we're at as an organization. And that's 
I guess part of what led me to be attracted to the position that I'm in now is that the organization that I'm at takes risk management from that perspective and really wants to make sure that we're doing things right. We're not just looking at a COI, glancing at it and, and handing it down and moving on. Yeah. When I think about risk management, I've sort of started to think about it in three distinct buckets. I think about it, one is in governance. How are we going to decide what is a risk, what isn't a risk? Then the ones that we decide, we have two options. We can either accept those known risks and try to correct those through behavioral, not correct them, but make them as safe as possible, right? Make them feasible for the business to take on. That's what I call known execution, known risk that you're going to execute against and or mitigate, right? Those are the options there. How do you manage those three buckets? How does that show up on your day-to-day? Where do you feel like as risk managers, you were very connected in, in the industry and you know a lot of other risk managers. Where do you feel like innovation is coming from, from a process perspective, from a way of looking at the business? Where would you take us in 2023? Like if risk managers were going to focus on governance, what kind of tips would you have for that as an example? Sure. So I think, I mean, separating risk management into those three things is, I guess it's, we're going to go the governance route, I guess. And if you don't mind giving me more background as to what, when you say governance, what are you putting into that bucket? Like in taking the risk from the different departments, figuring out how to analyze that risk as an example, then bringing that back to either that department to make the decision or whatever your process is. Maybe it's bringing it to an executive board to talk about or the executive CEO level, depending on your organization, how layered you are. I've seen that be managed different ways. But there's a part of a risk manager's job that is about taking information and taking risk in, then applying techniques to it so that you can get the idea of what that risk actually is. How big of a risk is it? What's it going to cost us if we don't do something about it? All of these things are necessary to make a business decision on it, which is where I've seen a lot of conversation emerge in the last six months around how do we have those conversations? Who do we include? You know, I think that one of the risk managers I met would talked a lot about how it's a full contact sport, right? It's like you have to touch every single department and you're not the expert in all those departments either. So how do you manage that process, I guess? Sure. So I think one thing that in our organization has been harped on a lot, especially recently, is just effective communication. From, from the start, from the start where we're even beginning to talk about a job that we might get down to when the subs or trade partners are coming on site. I mean, having everyone involved and everyone on the same page risk-wise, asking the questions, I mean... There's, like you said, we're not experts in every department. And I wouldn't want to be. I, I like having team members that are experts in their own way that know that they can come to me with a risk-related question. So I think in, in this world where every day we're, we're faced more and more with meetings after meetings, and it's just so hard to find time to talk to everybody, just making sure that the meetings that you are having, the communications you are having are effective, are you're making the most out of them. You're coming into the meetings prepared, I would say there's any piece of advice that I could give as to how do you get to the right place risk-wise on a job, on a project, is be prepared and ask in advance and don't be afraid to ask. I think too many times we're we're thinking, well, I should know that or they should know this. And nine times out of 10, that just leads to confusion and more time wasted. It's just important to always effectively communicate, whether that's through email, through Zoom meetings like this, or in-person meetings, whatever you're doing, just make it effective. As you identify those risks, as those risks come in and you supply information, you gather insights, and now you're ready to decide how you're going to deal with this risk. Talk a little bit about risk appetite and how you define what that means. And then how do you effectively communicate that 
to your executive team or to your leadership team? Sure. So risk, and I guess this would vary from organization or organization, but we have our own risk appetite that will allow. And I think every activity that we take on has a level of risk. We just always want to be in a position where we can quantify what we can tolerate. So when it comes to, to, I guess, delivering the message on what is tolerable, what is not, what we need more answers to is, again, it comes back to just having the answers to what we're doing. I mean, if the more information we get on the gather on the front end, so when we're looking at a job, looking at what it all, what all the scopes that it entails, ensuring that any adverse risks are talked about early on, so that when we have those meetings about what kind of scopes will this entail? Is there any hazard? Will there be any hazardous materials, any conditions, anything of that nature? I mean, those are questions that we as risk managers get the answers to. And it's never a, well, I don't know, or I wasn't told this or that. When we get that information, it allows us to more effectively analyze the risk, make those decisions, and then turn around and go up to whoever it might be, the CEO or, or anyone up above, and give them an explanation as to why we can't tolerate the risk or a risk that maybe had we not had any information, would have been a no. But now that we do have that information, we can say, okay, well, it would have been a no, but we can go this way or that way on this route. We, we can use this trade partner that we know has done this type of work before, uh, make smarter decisions that way. Do you guys use a centralized grading system or risk management thing to communicate the inherent risk of a particular decision or a particular vendor? Are you using it, some kind of symbolism or something to essentially communicate across the board about these different organizations and different decisions you're making? We do. We have a, we do use a system. It's internal to our organization and it's not a matrix. It's not a plug and play matrix where you type in, let's say a scope and a scope size and you get a magic risk grade. But we do have, it's mainly based on historical data that we've gathered, not just from our organization, but well, everything that's out there on the web, data that we've collected from third parties. So yeah, we do have a centralized data and we keep that stored ourselves to including lessons learned. And do you use that as a communication method for communicating why something is or isn't a certain decision? Like, has that been a useful tool? Because I know that a lot of people have tools like that, but they're not actually using it in their communication layer. And sometimes I find, especially when we're talking about effective communication, some sort of symbolism, some kind of thing that people can all latch on to and understand to be a beneficial way to do that effective communication. So it does communicate to a certain extent. I would say it has the cliff notes of why we did what we did. And again, that's archived. It's available for every project team to look up. And so when we have, we do a lot of, a lot of our projects tend to be similar to past projects. So we'll go back there and say, well, why did we do this way back then? Did it work? Did it not work? What can we do better? Can we maybe take a different approach on the next uh, go around? So it is. it does have some sort of communication. I can't say that it has an extensive list as to why we did what we did, but it's not just numbers. It does have some context to it, which is, I guess, most useful because it's not just numbers. It's numbers that, and explanations that can be used going forward. And even though jobs might be similar, they differ enough where we are going to have to make subtle changes here and there, but it gives us a good platform to build off of. Yeah, of course. I love that. When we think about vendor communication, we think about bringing on contractors or subcontractors or any of these things. What, like, one thing that keeps coming up on this podcast when I'm interviewing people is around that 
the trade partners that, that are available and who are trained and who can go to work easily, that that pool in most places have, has been shrinking. And there's been a move to consolidate or to really have great vendor communication so that it's a real partnership between you and your subcontractors, right? And the people that are working on your behalf and on projects. What have you seen innovation-wise around communicating, engaging with third parties that you think has been successful? Well, I think first and foremost, I love to use the word partnership because it really is a partnership that we have with our, and we use the same term, trade partner. We really see all of our trade partners as true partners in the projects that we're building, the, the buildings that we're putting up. As far as effective communication tools, we will exhaust every route, every, we have our, the platform that we use for our basic communications for our, on our project level for submittals and all that. We have the, our standard platform, but as far as uh, additional tools that we use for communication, it's really, that's one thing that I think has not changed too much. I mean, with the evolution of the internet, email, yeah, email is great and everything, but getting face-to-face with everybody and bringing everybody into the room for the conversations, not leaving anyone out in the dark with anything that maybe you think might not be relevant, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to accomplish the same goal. So I think effective communication just, it involves picking up the phone, getting in front of people, holding the right meetings. All of that, I think, put together is what really what makes those partnerships thrive. And and we've been lucky enough that we've been able to, to hold on to a lot of those partnerships for, in, in some cases, decades. We built those relationships. We continue to maintain them and hope to be able to build more. We don't. We also don't just want to only work with the same people over and over. We always want to be able to bring in additional. Right, that introduces risk onto itself, right? Obviously. Sure. So we want to be able to, at the same time, while maintaining those relationships, also creating new ones and showing those new ones why we've been so successful with these other organizations, with these other trade partners for so many years and hopefully just continue to build and help each other. When you have these trade partners, one thing that I've, found difficult about managing them, especially in your role, is that often there might not be people on their end who are insurance experts or really understand insurance that much. It might be a necessary evil, so to speak. I have to get this or I have to do that. How do you manage that insurance policy communication layer that's required when maybe your trade partners are not all insurance nerds, right? Or whatever. And then are there any specific documents or certificates that you tend to request that you think are really important to collect in that process? When it comes to communicating with our trade partners, I don't think, and we don't expect every trade partner to have an insurance expert sitting at the desk. It's, I think the most important aspect of it, and this especially happens when we have a new trade partner, maybe that is used to different uh, rules from general contractors or different contract terms. But again, effectively communicating and, and being clear from the get-go, from the bidding process, letting them know what the expectations are, why we do things the way we do. And if there's a good reason as to why they believe maybe something should be a, a little different, I mean, it's we're not a, here's the contract, sign it or leave it. It doesn't work that way. It's always about maintaining communication and, and hearing them out. Maybe when we're not seeing eye to eye, when maybe they've done things that they've worked with a different GC for 20 years. And all of a sudden now our organization is, is vastly different. I guess building that bridge and making sure that we're able to come up with works for everybody. I think when they see that you're willing to come to the table and not just throw a contract into on the table and say, take it or leave it. I think that is a huge step forward and allows them to see that we're not the type of business that 
again, is going to be hard stuck on a on a contract on the language and a contract, and we're people too, and that they want to work with. Do you think it's best, or do you think of, let's say, your risk profiles? Like, just let's use something very generic, like low, medium, high, and is that influenced by project, or do you take a individual trade partner approach to what's necessary for that job? Like, do you manage? like requirements and profiles at sort of an aggregate level for in your mind or maybe even in your systems? Or do you tend to apply towards the project and towards what's needed at that individual level? Every project that we do is assessed. The risk level is assessed individually. We have a baseline insurance requirements for all of our trade partners. Obviously, that sometimes we come into cases where we have clients or owners that, that have their own set of requirements. But on a general basis, we do have a standard platform. We build off of that standard. We will we'll do a uh, risk assessment before any job is started as to what we'll need, what that job will entail, what scopes will it have. So you'll sort of have a baseline and do a risk assessment on that baseline and see if anything needs to be altered. Is that the process usually? Yeah, so we'll have that baseline and based on our risk analysis, we'll establish additional requirements, whether that be pollution, professional liability, when there's design aspects, do we need excess excess liability? Do we need increased general liability? So it really comes, we do really get down into the nitty gritty of each project's budget and analyzing it that way. But yeah, to answer your question in short, we do have a baseline and we build off of that. Do you then look at those risk profiles, those risk segments that you do and do an analysis on all that work over the course of a year? Like, how do you ensure that those things, this is a common question, it's like, how do you ensure that you're both being flexible while also continuously scaling robust program, so to speak? Sure. So we our risk department keeps in close contact with every project team. So we uh, we're split up really into into divisions as our risk department divisions speaking as to what where the work is that we do. So we keep in close contact with the project teams. If there's ever an, an issue with coverage whether it's we, that the trade partner cannot obtain the coverage or they're having trouble the level of uh, getting the level of coverage that we need. That's always a conversation that we're looking to, that we're open to having. And so then you must maintain also that relationship between you and the project management team on those projects, right? Uh, open and transparent communication, making sure that you, that it's beneficial to talk to you guys about the risks that they're seeing or things that are happening in the field because you might not know otherwise, right? I think that's a dynamic that a lot of risk managers don't really want to touch is their relationship, especially in construction, the relationship with their project managers and how critical it is that you manage that successfully to the overall impact that your programs can make. Yeah. A risk manager having a successful and positive relationship with their project teams is almost, if not more vital than the relationship that you have with the trade partners. I mean, the, the project teams, they're the ones managing the guys out there. They're out there day to day seeing that the work get done. So being on the same page with them is really vital because they're your hand, they're your eyes out there. And you guys, you all want to be on the same page. And we really strive to have close relationships with our project managers just as much as we do with our trade partners. Let's say you're you're doing everything you can. You're mitigating. You understand the risk that you're taking on. God forbid something doesn't go right. What are your protocols for something came up and now we need to address it. What are ways that you've seen it be successful that you can then address that that issue that's come up, that incident that's come up, and then move forward from it? I think unexpected things coming up is the life of the risk manager. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're out there to do. I mean, as a risk manager, we are 
kind of that's when we're really looked to is when things that do happen that, that are not expected that come up, how are we going to resolve it? I can think of a handful of situations where I think being proactive and getting ahead of pretty much every line of communication that has to be open. So whether that's your claims adjuster, trade partners, like you said, a lot of trade partners are not well-versed in insurance. So if something happens, I mean, they may not have ever had a claim in their life. Our adjusters obviously have been doing this for so many years, so they're going to have a set of questions. So I think what has worked best in our organization is always maintaining transparency across all parties. Like I said, every our, I mean, our insurance carriers, sometimes insurance carriers are, are seen as the bad guys by either trade partners or risk managers, but really we're, we all have the same goals. We see our brokers are as true partners as well. We know that they want to help us get to the right place risk-wise. We want to have the right risk mitigation measures in place to, to make sure that if anything does happen, it doesn't get out of hand. And our trade partners, they're out there trying to build these buildings and also doing their best to, to manage these risks. So transparency, I think, is what, what works best is when everyone really feels like they're being, I guess, their opinion or they're being kept in the loop. That's what has been helping everybody get to the finish line the most effective way. When I was at RIMS, something that kept coming up is data and risk tech or insure tech, whatever language you want to use. I like risk tech when I'm talking here because I'm talking to risk managers and it's technology that impacts the risk manager's job, right? Which may be part of an insure tech, but I like to think about it in that way. One thing that kept coming up is how can there's mitigating the risk. That's a big portion of a risk manager's job. There's also the insurance portion. And in the insurance portion, some risk managers feel powerless for the negotiation, renewal time. What can I do to show that? And there was this big conversation happening in, at RIMS around using the data from your risk programs as evidence to either keep your premiums where they're at or reduce the premiums, I think is the ideal outcome, but really one that not, doesn't seem to be too realistic sometimes. And that becoming like, how can we start to use data that we have in our systems as means of evidence to show that we're running a program that is actually de-risking the work that we do a significant enough scale? Are these areas that you guys have started to experiment or that you have opinions on? Yeah. So, and I think a good example that we, that I can use for our organization is when it comes to cyber, the, the cyber world is, it's really changing every single day. I mean, it's, I remember from when I was on the broker side years ago, I mean, the number of, of organizations that had cyber was minuscule compared to what we see now in the premiums and the number of pages that these applications are nowadays compared to back then. It's really night and day. So I think being able to take the data for what if other organizations out there have their own IT programs, and if they don't, what their third-party IT vendors are doing, that's probably some of the most, some of the easiest data to aggregate because it's already being stored somewhere. So taking that data and, and showing your underwriters, your brokers, what you're doing, what security measures you're taking, and putting those together well in advance of your application process can really set you aside from what other organizations of your magnitude might be doing. So you're not even only seeing it during the negotiation of ongoing insurance, but when you have to purchase new insurance, using this data as a means when you probably have the most negotiating power you have during the whole cycle, right? One last question. If you had to forecast the future of technology in the industry, what's some of the things that you would like to see technology sort of tackle? So I've been a huge, I guess, proponent of using technology to make our lives easier, not just for the sake of making them easier, but to allow us to do more. I think that I'll take ChatGPT as an example. 
I mean, it's really a platform where you you literally type anything in and you get a response out in 30 seconds. I mean, leveraging that type of technology that can help us as risk managers, not just do our jobs more effectively, but, but be able to tackle more. I think being able to automate a lot of systems, Trustlayer is a great example. We uh, took on that on that platform and its automation level has allowed us to do a lot more as a risk department than what we were able to do with other past platforms. Automation and is huge. I mean, being able to take simple tasks, simple administrative tasks and take the, t- the, the hours spent or, and sometimes the days spent or saved from those safe processes is key. I think the organizations that that leverage their technology and that use it to make strides are going to be light years ahead in the years to come from organizations that don't choose to follow the technology or implement it as well. Yeah, the automations aren't there to take away someone's job. It's that the world of risk, modern risk is complex. We didn't have five years ago something that we all survived through like the pandemic. We didn't have the supply chain issues. We didn't have the sexual harassment, like very good things that we should be doing, but things that are much more complex that exist in in human-to-human interactions especially when you're building something that also on itself is very complex to build. And I feel like the reason, one of the reasons that risk managers have started to take an active, a much more active role in all of these conversations and really driving them to conclusions is because they're spending less time doing bureaucratic follow-up. The technology is making it easier for them to get that job sort of on autopilot so that they can actually focus on assessing risk, which is what I think a good risk manager really likes. They use their curiosity to really paint the picture of what could or what outcomes are possible. Sure. Yeah, man. And I fully agree with you that I really don't think automation is here to, to take anyone's job. I What I do think is that those of us who use automation to enhance our work are going to be set aside and be seen as, as a step ahead of those of us who do not use that automation, do not use that technology. So it's not out there to take anyone's job, but it will make us who use it a lot more effective than those who maybe do not or don't know about it yet. Well, I look forward to hailing our robot overlords when we're both wrong about this. (laughs) (laughs) It was very nice talking to you, Marco. I really appreciate you joining me on Brick and by Brick and hopefully I have you on a future episode. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jason. It was a pleasure. Thank you, man. Yeah. Risk Management Brick by Brick is brought to you by Trustlayer. Find out how Trustlayer manages risk so that the people can build the physical world around us, head over to trustlayer.io. And then make sure to subscribe to Risk Management Brick by Brick on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the Trustlayer team, thank you for listening.